continue our study through the book of Genesis. We'll see uh, maybe possibly if we can get through this chapter this morning. Those of you who have your Bibles, grab it and open it, and let's turn to chapter 16 and stand with me. We're going to actually read just the first six verses, and then we'll pray and jump into our study. Genesis chapter 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, you may wonder why is it still Sarai and Abram. Eventually, they're going to get their names changed to Sarah and Abraham, so we kind of use them interchangeably now, but you all know who we're talking about. Now, Sarai and Abram's wife had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maidservant. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maidservant into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, Your maid is in your hand. Do with her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, that is with Hagar, she fled from her presence. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, what a mess your covenant people can make. And Lord, we see ourselves certainly in this text. And Lord, if not at this point, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves in this text as we plod through it. And Lord, as we see ourselves, Lord, we pray that even more importantly, that we would see you. And Lord, how you come and you meet your people and the messes that they make. You're a marvelous and wonderful God, and we thank you that you are. And it's in Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You all can be seated. So you all remember in the previous chapter, chapter 15, Abram's faith was a bit wobbly, right? And time was passing by, and... He's still dwelling in a tent in a land that's not his with his wife, Sarah. And they still don't have a child. And you remember in chapter 15, God lovingly stoops down and he reminds Abram of the promises that he's made to him all the way back in chapter 12 when he's first arrived in the land that yes, I am going to give you a child, and yes, I am going to give your descendants this land. And he gives him two vivid pictures, you remember, to kind of make the promises certain to Abram, more vivid to Abram. You remember he takes him outside and he says, Abram, I am going to give you a child. Just look up in the the heavens, look at the stars. He says, your descendants are going to be greater than this number of stars out here. And Abram's like, well, what about the land? And so you remember the Lord says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take these different animals and I want you to hack them in half. I want you to cut them in half. And I want you to lay their bloody carcasses in two parallel rows. And then God himself, Abram's just a observant in this. He's a passive participant, if you will. And he watches God go through as a, as a, as a flaming torch and 
you know, a smoking, flaming torch go through this thing. And in other words, what God was saying is, Abram, if I don't give you and your descendants this land, may the curse of the covenant come upon me. May what happened to these animals happen to me. And you would think that after those two vivid pictures, after that assurance that God gave Abram, his faith now strengthened by the promises of God, you would think that he wouldn't be tempted to distrust the Lord. But we would be wrong. You see, the problem of time marches on in this chapter. Abram has promises from God. He has assurance from God. But the outward circumstances aren't changing. You see, the problem is God is not moving fast enough for them. Have, have you ever felt that way? That God's just not moving fast enough for you? And so then impatient begin, impatience begins to set in with Abram and Sarah. And it gets the best of them. And what a mess they're going to make in this chapter. It's a mess so big that the consequences of their mess are still causing problems today. But in the midst of the mess that they make and the pain that they cause, we're going to see God come on the scene in verse 7 and reveal himself in a fresh and wonderful and marvelous way. And so the chapter, it opens with a restatement of the ongoing problem that Abram and Sarah are facing. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. In spite of God's promise of offspring, there in the tent, the nursery that Sarai has set up, the crib that Abram's built, still empty. Time marches on. The promise hasn't come. And we're told, as you look down at the end of verse 3, we're told that Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan at this point. You remember he was 75 years old, we're told, when he left Haran. That was after his father, Terah, had died. Now, we don't know how old Abram was when the Lord saved him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Scripture doesn't tell us that. He could have been 35, 45, 55. We don't know. You know, the implication is there that when he left Ur with his dad and with his nephew Lot and with Sarah, that it was several years previously, and he went to Haran, and and there they dwelt until his father died. So they could have been there for several years. Abram could have been saved for several years at that point. He gets called to leave there at 75 years old. He's been in Canaan for 10 years. He's 85 years old at this point. But he's been walking with the Lord for a while now. And it may be that after the assurance of chapter 15, that they probably thought that Sarah, you know, the Lord's given me this wonderful assurance. He's given me this great vivid picture of these stars outside, and my descendants are going to be greater than the multitude of these stars. Surely, very soon, my wife, Sarah, will be with child. But weeks roll into months, months maybe into years, and still no baby. 
And so the problem is identified there in the very first verse. There is no child yet. The promise that God has made has not come. So now they come up with a solution. And it says that Sarah had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Now, where does she come from? It's believed that she probably came when you remember Abram and Sarah, when there was a famine in the land, when they first arrived in Canaan, and there was a famine in the land, in the promised land. And where do they go for help? Do they stay there and trust the Lord? No, they go to Egypt. And you remember that was another mess that poor old Abram made. And Abram says, hey, why don't you tell all the, all the people there that you're my sister, which was a half-truth, which is a full lie, because he was a half-sister. But he wanted to save his own skin. And she got taken into Pharaoh's house, you remember. And then when Pharaoh find out, found out that she was really married to Abram, he's like, get out of here. So he exiled him and said, go back home. But when he sent them home, you remember, he sent them with a lot of gifts. Here, take this stuff and get out of here. And it's believed at that point that probably Hagar was acquired as she was there in Pharaoh's house, and it was given to Sarah and Abram as, she, as they left the country. Nothing good came out of their sojourn in Egypt. All the wealth that they acquired, you remember the problem that that caused them? When they got back to the promised land, they were so wealthy that there was strife between Lot and, and Abram, and they had to separate. Nothing good. Hagar, this is not a good thing. So she's got this Egyptian maidservant whose name is Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram in verse 2, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid servant. Please go into my maid. I shall obtain children by her. And so Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. As best we can tell that it's probable that Sarah's heart was kind of a mixture of both good and bad here. I think that she so wanted, just like Abram, they so wanted to, to see the promise of God fulfilled. They wanted to see the, 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 the seed of the woman come on the scene who was going to crush the serpent, who was going to bring redemption, who was going to fix all this mess that Adam and Eve had caused in the garden. The promises of Genesis 3.15. I think they both wanted that desperately. They desired to see that. They had a hope for that. But they, she so wanted God's promise fulfilled that she was willing to sacrifice the specialness of her intimate relationship with her husband. And at the same time, the bad in all this, besides that part, it seems that in her heart there was anger, there was, there was frustration, there was blame. Notice what she says, the Lord has restrained me held me back. I mean, there's a truth in that, right? I mean, we, we know the scripture teaches that it's the Lord who opens the womb. And some of you women who've maybe been challenged in that area, you know, and you can relate to Sarah and the struggle there, maybe to blame and to be frustrated and to be angry with the Lord because you so desperately want a child to have and to hold and to love and to pour into. 
Sarah takes her anger and her frustration and she points the blame to the Lord. He has restrained me. He's held me back from bearing children. So there's a kind of a mixture of good. They want the promised child, but she's angry at the Lord. She blames him. And in the midst of her anger and her blame and also in the desire to see the promised child come, she she must have began to think that maybe the promise that God gave to Abram didn't include her, right? Maybe it's just for Abram, but it's not really for me because if it was for me, he would have opened my womb. So maybe it involves someone else. And so she takes matters into her own hands to try to fix the problem. And listen, this never ends well when we take matters into our own hand, when we deviate from the prescription, from the prescribed word of God and his promises to us. Because you think about this. You see, the promise was made to Adam, right? To Seth, their son, to Noah, to Abram, or to Noah, and then to Shem, his son, and then to, to Abram, right? And to his children. The point being that once you get to Noah and to his son, Shem, the promise begins to become a little bit more focused. It's going to come through Shem, the descendant of Noah, that descendant, not Japheth, not Ham, but Shem. Now, this Egyptian woman, Hagar, she's not a descendant of Shem. Who's she a descendant of? Back to the table of nations. She's a descendant of Ham. The promise is not going to come through her. The promise is going to come through Abram and Sarah. And so Abram and Sarah knew this, but they got impatient. So they take matters into their own hands. And Sarah devises what we can call the Hagar method of conception to conceive the promised son. Notice what it says there. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after after Abram had dwelt in the land for 10 years. Keep coming back to that problem of time, don't we? So she devises this Hagar method to conceive the promised son. Now, Let's be fair, this was a sanctioned custom in the local culture. In other words, culturally, what Sarah did was okay. In some of the 19th century BC Assyrian materials that we still that we have access to today that have been preserved, there's a provision that if a wife doesn't produce children for her husband within two years. You're on notice, ladies. She herself could buy a slave woman. And after that slave woman had given birth to the child, the husband could sell her off wherever he wished. And so there was this provision culturally that made this practice acceptable for for Sarah to do this, to bring Hagar in and say, hey, you're my maidservant. You go in and, and you, you know, you sleep with my husband and you bear a child and that child shall be mine and it'll be my heir, but you do that and we're going to do with you what we wish. 
So culturally, it was okay. But let me say this. Just because something is culturally or even legally acceptable doesn't make it right for God's people. You see, the laws of the culture, the laws of the land, if they're in conflict with the laws of God, then we have to submit to the higher authority, right? Which is the word of God. Your word is truth, Jesus says. Not what the culture says, but what he says. So you think about that practically, what's that look like? I mean, culturally, legally, there are some things that are acceptable within, within our country, right? Abortion, culturally, legally acceptable. Fornication. Hey, you know what? If two people are committed to each other, they love each other, it's okay to shack up, right? I mean, legally, there's no law against that. You're not going to be thrown in jail. Culturally, it's certainly acceptable today. It used to not be, but it is today. Even homosexuality used to not be culturally or even legally acceptable, but they are both today, aren't they? Hey, it doesn't matter who you love, right? As long as you love someone. Pornography. Legally, culturally acceptable, right, to view this adult content. I don't know why they call it adult content. It's really not fit for anyone, young or old. But it's legally, culturally acceptable. Drunkenness. Legally, you, you, can, you can get drunk all day long, right, as long as you don't get behind a wheel and you're not publicly intoxicated or driving under the influence. It's legally, culturally acceptable. So too is recreational marijuana. Today, it's legally and culturally acceptable to get high. You see, they're all legal and culturally acceptable, but here's the problem. They're not moral, nor are they biblically acceptable. And let me, let me throw this little caveat in for those of you who maybe want to argue about the recreational marijuana. We can, we can discuss medical marijuana and the possible benefits of that, maybe. I think too many people want to say, well, you know what? Recreational marijuana, it's no, really no different than wine. It's no different than alcohol. And the Bible permits the use of alcohol, but not the abuse of it. But there's a big difference between having a glass of wine maybe with a, uh, with a meal and smoking a joint with your In-N-Out burger. There's a big difference. The difference is that maybe one glass of wine or one beer is not going to get you lit unless you have a predisposition to maybe some type of medical problem that would cause that. But it's not going to get you lit. But I don't know of any marijuana out there today that by smoking a joint that you're not going to be intoxicated. You see, the Bible prohibits intoxication, whether it be from wine or whether it be from marijuana. You know, I was when I was down at the conference, the IBCD conference here a couple of weeks ago, and there was a medical doctor there, and he was talking about some of the different addictions that are, you know, people are struggling with. He was talking a lot about the opioid problem in America today, but he was also talking about recreational marijuana. And he was talking about, he said, you know, the marijuana today is not 
your mom and dad's marijuana, or my marijuana, I should say. The, the, the THC content, which is what makes you high in marijuana, the THC content in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and maybe early 80s, was maybe about 15%. Today, the THC content, they have, they have crafted it so well that the THC content is somewhere around 90%. So now I'm just telling you from a guy before I was saved and who smoked marijuana, it didn't take a whole lot. It's not like you had to sit and, you know, have a whole garbage bag full to get you high. I mean, you know, just a little bit would get you high. So I can't even imagine what the stuff today does to you. So let's don't play that game. Well, you know, marijuana is like alcohol. No, it's intoxicating. And by the way, let me just remind you, though it may be legal in our state to smoke pot, it's still a federal crime. The use, possession, sell, cultivation, transportation of marijuana is illegal under federal law, and we're still bound by Romans 13. So, just because something is culturally, legally acceptable doesn't make it okay if it doesn't line up with the Word of God. And so what Sarah and Abram were doing was culturally acceptable, but still the instruction of Genesis chapter 2 informs, should inform their decision and our decision that a marriage is between a man and a woman. One man, one woman. The mother, you know, the, 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 should leave our mother and father and be joined to our wife, not wives. We don't, we don't bring others into this. We don't deviate from the prescribed word of God. So they, they weren't without the truth, but they deviated from the truth. They capitulated to the culture. And every time we capitulate and we let the culture inform us rather than the word of God inform us, we're headed for trouble, young people. And this is what we do. We get into these gymnastics of trying to justify our actions. And you can pretty much guarantee when you start getting into the mental gymnastics to try to justify our actions, we've deviated from the clear word of God. But here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that the writer describes the situation. He describes it as if he's sympathetic towards Sarai. Notice twice that he refers to her as Sarah, Abram's wife. He wants us to know that Sarah is Abram's wife, that they're married. And then he mentions that Sarah gave Hagar to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. You see, the writer here is saddened by the whole affair, that the marriage relationship is being intruded upon by something that's foreign to this one-man, one-woman marriage. And then he mentions, and he mentions the problem of barrenness. They've been there... You know, here's Sarah, and she's not able to have a child. And then he mentions the challenge of, you know, of path, time passing, that Abram's dwelt in the land for 10 years now. Now, why, why does he mention all this stuff? Because I think he wants to remind us of the pressures that faith faces. And in the midst of those pressures, sometimes, I think we get it, don't we? Sometimes it's hard to know whether faith should, should act or it should wait. There's that challenge. 
But I think the bigger point that he's making here is that the Bible has a great sympathy for the dilemma that God's people face. Sometimes the pressures of God's people involve the passing of time like it did with Abram and Sarah, right? And we can relate to that. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd like to be married. You'd like to raise a family. But, but marriage doesn't look hopeful because there's no Christians in the, you know, Christian men or women in the circles that you frequent. And so then time just goes on, right? And time goes on, and then the temptation, like with Abram and Sarah, comes in to be impatient. Well, I'll, you know what, I'll just hook up with that guy or that gal at the office. You know, they're, they're, they're decent. They treat me nice. They, they pay me attention. And, you know, so these temptations come in. Maybe the pressure of time that you're experiencing have to do with a grown child that you've spent years training up in the way that they should go. You've done your best to point them to the Lord and and to love on them and to pray for them. But there's still no evidence of faith in Christ. It's as if their ears are stopped up and their eyes are calloused over with cataracts and they don't see the good news of the gospel and maybe they're in their late 20s or they're in their early 30s or their 40s and it seems like there's no evidence of the of of the spirit's work in their lives and their hearts and time just passes by Or maybe you're suffering from an aggravating physical condition that is just unrelenting. You've prayed for relief. You've tried all the medications, all the essential oils that are out there. Every modern remedy known to man. But relief eludes you. And time goes on. And nothing changes. And listen. Nothing may, not, may change. Your circumstances, my circumstances may not change. But the way the Bible highlights this difficulty here and the way the writer so sympathetically describes Sarah's trial tells us that the Bible, or I should better say the God of the Bible, understands the pressure that God's people face. And even though, you know, the, 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 the narrative here doesn't endorse Sarah's plan, it certainly doesn't endorse it, it nevertheless understands Sarah and Abram's anguish, and it sympathizes with her in the pressures and the disappointments. And that's encouraging, that we have a God who understands. He doesn't endorse our impatience And when we act contrary to his word. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't understand. He doesn't identify with. And he doesn't care about the challenges and the struggles that God's people face. Well, so the Hagar method of of conception, of conceiving the promised child is set in motion. Notice what it says in verse 4. So 
he, that is Abram, he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised. That is, Sarah became despised in her eyes. So Hagar, Abram goes into her, she's a fertile myrtle. That's all you can say. She gets pregnant, and, and then the result of that is as she gets pregnant, she begins to flaunt her baby bump. She begins to strut her newfound roundness, if you will, in front of Sarah. And Sarah is not too happy about this at all. And she lays into Abram. Sarah said to Abram, verse 5, My, whose fault? It's, look what you did. Look at the mess you've made. My wrong be upon you. I gave my maidservant into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged. I'm taking this to the highest court there is. The Lord judged between you and me. You have messed up, buddy. And that, guys, you get that, right? It's a catch 22. Now, she says, my wrong be upon you. You're familiar with this Hebrew word here. You may not know it right off, but you're familiar with it. You've heard it before. It's a familiar word. You've heard it on the TV news when they talk about all the problems in the Middle East, especially when they talk about the problems in, in Israel and uh, the, you know, the occupied areas where the Palestinians are live. And you've heard the word Hamas, right? That's what this word is, the Hebrew word there for you've wronged me. You, you hamas me. You've done violence to me. You've done outrage to me. Sarah's fit to be tied. She blames Abraham. She points the finger at him. And, and you know, Abram, he's a, he's a man of faith. He's a great man of faith, right? He's a take charge kind of guy. So he pulls back his robe and he sticks out his hairy chest. And he says to, to Sarah, he says, your maid is in your hand. Do with her as you please. He wimped out. The guy wimped out. And he tells, hey, tells Sarah, he says, hey, she, Hagar's under your jurisdiction. She's your maidservant. And according to uh, the code of Ur-Namu, which is one of the ancient you know, laws that they had for the Mesopotamian people that we still have one of their tablets today, it specified that disrespectful concubines could be dealt with by scouring out their mouths with a quart of salt. You, you, got, you got a woman like Hagar, your maidservant, take a quart of salt, dump her in her mouth, and you just clean that nasty. That'll, that'll teach her, right? Now, we don't know if Sarah used the saline solution here. We don't have a clue. But we do know that she laid into Hagar pretty severely. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, Sarah, I'm sorry, Hagar fled from her presence. So she dealt with her pretty severely. So who was at fault here? They all were, weren't they? There's blame to go all the way around. And there's finger pointing going every which way. Hagar got too big for her britches. When she saw her new, and I don't mean that, well, I do mean that both ways. <laughs> there was no pun intended there, but when she saw her new elevated status as pregnant with Abram's child, she got prideful. She got arrogant. She got haughty. 
And she began to look down on Sarah. Hey, Sarah, look, it's not that hard. It's not that difficult. And of course, Abram and Sarah were, were not innocent in this mess either. They were also in the wrong. I mean, look how they treated Hagar, both of them. This isn't just a Sarah problem. This is an Abram problem too. Not, not only have they disobeyed God in his, in his you know, direct word, but how they treated her. They've taken this woman. This woman, she's an Egyptian. She's a maidservant. She's a slave, if you will. But she's still made in the image of God. She's still an image bearer. And they've taken her and they've used her and they've traded her and treated her like a commodity, like a piece of property. And then Sarah, when she doesn't like the results of her own plan, she treats her terribly. Did you notice how this whole sordid mess parallels the fall in the Garden of Eden? Don't you think that is part of Moses' intention here as he writes this and puts this together for us? Abram listened to his wife just as Adam did in the garden, right? Sarah took Hagar just as Eve took the fruit. And Sarah gave Hagar to her husband just as Eve gave the fruit to Adam. And then, just like in the garden, the finger begins to point. And blaming commences, doesn't it? Just like they did in the garden. Even the motive seems similar, doesn't it? In the garden, they weren't satisfied with all that God had given them. So too with Abram and Sarah. They weren't satisfied with the promise and to wait. We'll take these things in their own hands. What a disappointing people God's covenant people can be, huh? We can be a disappointing people. Now, we can sit and we can just wallow in that. We can woe is me. We can have a pity party about that. Because here's the truth of it is, we know that we're a disappointing people. Because we live with ourselves, don't we? We go home with ourselves at the end of the day. We know the thoughts that we have, we have thunked. We know the things that we have said. We know the things that we should have done that we didn't do. But, but, but here's, here's the point. Seeing our wretchedness, and, and I hope that you see your wretchedness, because if you don't see how bad you are, then you haven't seen the cross of Jesus Christ clearly. But seeing our wretchedness, it should cause us to mourn. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, blessed are they that mourn, shall they, they should be what? They should be comforted. It, it's healthy to grieve over the evil that still clings to us. There is evil that clings to us, and it will cling to us until we go to the grave. And it's a good thing for us to see our wretches and to mourn over that, because as we mourn, it doesn't say the Lord says, oh my goodness, look at these filthy, rotten people. They're just so nasty, so dirty, so evil. I just can't be near them, but he says, I will comfort them. I don't push them away. I comfort them. It's like I bring them up like, a, like one of your little kids who's been out in the mud all day long. They're just as cute as a button, you know? And you bring them up, you, put, you don't mind getting your hands dirty around them, do you? But we should do more than mourn. 
Paul tells us that we should mortify sin, not just mourn over our sin, but mortify it in Colossians 3, 5. And that means we put it to death. We kill it. Mortification, it begins with mourning over sin. A broken heartedness over our Adam-like nature and the ruin that it still inflicts upon us and the messes that we still make just like Abram and Sarah. We can sit here and say, oh, Abram and Sarah, what, what a bunch of knuckleheads. No, it's not about Abram and Sarah. It's about you and it's about me. We've got to insert ourselves into Scripture. We do this. I do this. I get impatient. We get ahead of God. We lean on our own understanding. And we make a mess of things. Well, another parallel that we see here with Adam and Abram is that both of these men abdicated their God-given role of spiritual headship in the home. Instead of leading their wives toward the path of obedience to God, they followed their wives away from obedience, didn't they? You see, they they didn't take their role seriously. Adam didn't say, hey, Eve, you know what? Listen, honey, this isn't good. God told us to be satisfied with all these other things, with all these other trees we could eat of, but he asked us to not not eat from the fruit of this tree because in the day that we do, we're going to die. Honey, we we shouldn't do that. We need to trust the Lord. Abram should have said, honey, I I understand. I I get your impatience. I'm there too. I'm struggling with that, Sarah. I'm having a hard time too. But listen, he's made a promise to us, and we need to trust him that he's going to satisfy his promise in his time. We need to wait, and we need to pray. And let's help each other do this well. But they didn't. They listened to their wives, and they led them away from obedience to disobedience. Now, this isn't to say that husbands should never listen to your wives. Do not walk away from here saying, that's my role. I've got to lead. Woman, listen. Don't, that's not what I'm saying. Matter of fact, if you want to look ahead, go back and read Genesis 21, 12, where God is going to say to Abram specifically, listen to your wife. Do what she says, Abram. She's got some wisdom here, and you need to heed her voice. There are many times that our wives lead us toward the truth. They often, you know, they're given to us, you know, to us husbands, as helpers to complete us. In other words, I'm going to make a mess of things without her. They, they bring unique, unique insights to bear and unique wisdom that we often lack. Listen, I, I don't know any wiser woman than my wife. She is a blessing to me. She has insights that I don't have, understandings of Scripture and God that I don't have, and I'm a fool not to listen to her. And when I don't, I often make foolish mistakes. Now, having said that, our wives can also lead us away from obedience to God. And and in that, I may listen to my wife, not because what she's saying is right and wise, but oftentimes my problem is I listen because I don't want conflict. You see, my little kingdom of comfort, it's about ready to be assaulted And so I don't want that assault on my kingdom of comfort. I want to avoid conflict at all costs. Okay, honey, let's go do that. Anything to keep the peace. 
And when I do that and when you do that, men, that's a clear failure of leadership on our part. As well as a failure to love our wives as Christ loved the church. You see, because if we love our spouse, if we love our wives, and they're leading us toward disobedience, if we love them, we should talk with them. We should confront them on their wrong thinking. That's right, and it's good. It doesn't mean it needs to be an ugly conversation. It needs to be a conversational type of conversation where we relate to them as equal with us. Yes, we have different roles, but we're both equal image bearers, and we complete each other. We walk side by side. I don't walk here, and my wife walks here. And so we have a conversation. Now, having said that, let's not forget, men, that there are times when we can lead our wives astray. And our wives equally should confront us with our sinful and wrong ideas. They should lovingly come alongside of us and say, Hey, honey, listen. This isn't good. This isn't helpful. This isn't the right way to do it. This won't please the Lord. And we need that because we can fail too. But in this situation, Abram, like Adam, clearly abdicated his God-given role. And in my experience, godly women want a husband who know their role and aren't afraid to lovingly lead. Men, let's lead. Let's lovingly lead. Let's lead well. Let's put our our arms around our wives and let's walk together. We don't got to get angry. We don't have to get ugly. We don't need to use foul language. We don't need to point our fingers. We don't need to get in their face. Because all of those are a marred representation of Christ our King and how he treats people. Well, Sarah made Abram's, I'm sorry, made, well, she made Abram's life miserable too, but she made Hagar's life unbearable. So she fled. And we catch up with her as she heads back to Egypt here. It says, now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur, that's, she's almost down at the Egyptian border by now. And he says to her, so the angel of the Lord here, this is probably some type of a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ, you know, before he actually uh, comes on the scene as and born as, 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 a, as a child there in, in the New Testament. But he made appearances throughout the Old Testament. This is the, the Lord here. The angel of the Lord found, finds her as she's there by a spring of water heading back home to Egypt. And he said, Hagar. Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah, that mean old witch. That's my addition there, sorry. (laughs) But I want you to notice, notice how marvelous the Lord is in his mercy toward this Egyptian maidservant. The Lord finds this lowly. See, he doesn't just come to kings and, and, to, and to, you know, famous people. He comes to the lowly. That's who he primarily comes to, right? He comes to this lowly servant girl. And notice what he does. He calls her by name. 
He doesn't say, hey, you. He doesn't say, hey, hey, maidservant of Sarah. He says, Hagar. He calls this woman by name. Do you you begin to see maybe some gospel implications here? He seeks her out, right? She's not looking for him, but because there are none who seek God, no, not one. But here God seeks her out. Now, now, listen, I don't want to go too far. because I don't know Hagar's uh, status as far as whether the Lord saved her. I mean, Scripture's not clear on that. Um, But I think there's certainly some pretty strong overtones of gospel implications here and his mercy toward her, that he seeks her out, and he calls her by name. And there's more. Notice the direction the Lord gives Hagar the prodigal here in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. This, this is a hard word that he says to her. Hagar, Listen, you are going the wrong way. You're going to Egypt. There's no blessing to be found in Egypt. You're you're, you're moving away from the promise. And with a few brief words, really what you see here is is the angel of the Lord, he convicts her of her sin and of her rebellion. And he points out the helplessness of her condition apart from Abram and his house. You're not going to be blessed going to Egypt. There's no salvation to be found there. There's no hope there. Your hope is to be, you see, I promised to bless Abram and and to bless those who bless him. He's going to be a blessing to those that he's around. Yeah, I know he's making some mistakes here, but this is where we need to get you back to. The way of blessing isn't in Egypt, rather it's in Abram's house. Gospel implications. Notice how marvelous God is in his comfort of Hagar in verse 10 through 12. He says, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. Well, that's really got some New Testament implications there too, doesn't it? And you shall call his name Ishmael, meaning God hears. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. What kind of a kid is he going to be? He's going to be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand shall be against him. He's going to be a lot to handle, and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. He's going to be a leader among his people. So the Lord tells her that she's going to have a son. He said, I want you to call him Ishmael because I've heard your affliction. And every time she's going to look at Ishmael, he's going to be a reminder that the Lord met her at her lowest point, in her greatest need, in her greatest desperation. Isn't that where the Lord meets us? Isn't that where our eyes are open and our ears are open to the gospel? It's usually at our lowest. It's not when we're on the mountaintop and life is great. It's usually when, man, we're at the end of our rope, coming apart at the seams. Notice how marvelous God is in his wonder, verse 13. And then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees El Roy, a new name we get for God. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called something, something there, Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered, so it's down there on the Egyptian border, and that would have been familiar to the children of Israel as they're leaving 
Egypt. But do you notice how marvelous God is in his wonder there toward her? Hagar had made her own contribution to this domestic mess in Abram and Sarah's house. But the Lord still comes after her. And the Lord is still sympathetic toward her affliction, toward her situation, toward her difficulty. God, God doesn't abandon her and say, get out of my sight. Look, look at the horrible mess. Look, look at you're complicit in this destruction of this home and the, and the grief that it's going to cause. I like what one commentator said. He says, grace doesn't dry up because we're stupid. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful truth? I think about how stupid I am at times. And if God's grace, see, it's, 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 God's grace is unmerited. That even when we're stupid, he still gives us grace. Well, that's good news. And so we're given this picture of a marvelous God here. And, and there's something very attractive about the God who deals with Hagar. It's as if the writer is tempting us, inviting us, if you will, to give ourselves to this God. Have you given yourself to this God? This God who sees and calls us by name and says, I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty in the mess that you've made. Now, I don't want to gloss over the fact that the Lord tells Hagar to return and submit to this situation. That would be easy just to run on and pass that up. But when God finds us wandering away from him, running from our difficult circumstances, isn't this what he often says to you and I? Return and submit. You made a mess. There's consequences here. You're going to reap what you've sown. Some things can't be fixed in this life. Now, Having said that, let me point out this. This doesn't mean that if you're in a marital situation and you're being physically abused or you're being emotionally or verbally abused, and there's this long-term pattern of emotional verbal abuse in your, in your marriage by your spouse, the Lord is not saying here, return and submit. Suck it up. Go back home. Take more. Think about David. Before he was king, he had been anointed to be king, and there Saul is. He's sitting at his table, and he's throwing spears at him. He's taking this physical and verbal and emotional abuse. This, he's suffering the wrath of this irrational man, right? And the Lord doesn't say to David, hey, go back home. Just put a helmet on. No. You see, we get enough suffering in this life that comes to us because we live in a fallen world. The Lord doesn't want us to be unreasonable and not think through these things. But the underlying principle is being taught here is that we can't run from our problems. We have to deal with them. But we're not alone. The God who knows our name, who sees our affliction, just like he was with Hagar, he is with us. And we still got to deal with them. Well, Hagar, she obeyed the Lord, and she returned, and she submitted herself. And she bore Abram's son in verse 15. 
And Abram named his son. You see how everything comes around from the beginning of the chapter? Sarah wanted a child that would be the heir of the promise, but she didn't have a child to take her. It's all backwards. It's all messed up. Abram named a son whom Hagar bore Ishmael, and Abram is now 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This was supposed to be Sarah's, but it's not. This was supposed to be the child of the promise, but it's not. And her, Hagar's return, it teaches us at least a couple of things. And one is it shows us the contrast between Sarah's disobedience and yet Here's this lowly servant, Hagar, in her obedience. She returns and she submits to the Lord. It also shows us that sometimes we have to live with the painful consequences of our sin. But listen, there, there is no neat and tidy way of disposing of Abram and Sarah's sin as if it had never happened. This kid, Ishmael, is going to be in their face. Their sin is going to be in their face for years to come. Our sin can't simply be waved away. The consequences of it, the very blessing that promised to Hagar would prove to be a continual problem for Israel. You see, because Ishmael became the father of the Arab people. And we still see that conflict going on between the Arabs and the Jews, the, the, the Semite people, even to this day. And those sins can't simply be waved away. In other words, it can't be buried and forgotten. Here's the good news. Though it can't be just waved away, it can be atoned for. The consequences of our sin, they, they may plague us till the day that we die. Do you have consequences of your sin or regrets from your past that you're going to take to the grave with you? Are there things that still come up in my mind? Are things I did before I was saved and things I've done after? I, you can't go back and fix them right? And, and we deal with the consequences of that. And they plague us maybe for the rest of our lives, but they don't have to torture us for eternity. You see, at the cross, God, the one who sees our affliction, the one who sees the messes that we make, just like with Hagar, he has an ear to hear our cry of help. And as he hears, what does he do? He goes to the cross. And he says, listen, all the sin that you have done, I'm going to take it upon myself. And I'm going to be afflicted on behalf of you. I'm going to take your affliction, the mess you've made, and I'm going to bear it on myself upon the cross of Calvary. And I'm going to take the punishment that you and I deserve, which is death. I'm going to take it upon myself. And in Christ, the eternal ramifications of our sin have been dealt with. You see, Scripture says that he removes, that by the shedding of his blood, there's remission of sin, there's removal of it, right? We're cleansed, we're forgiven. And the Scripture gives us this great good news that he remembers our sin no more. And he removes it as far as the east is from the west. You know what that means? That means that God won't use our sin against us. In heaven, we'll never hear of that again. Our sins and our consequences will never torture us again. They, they won't plague you. They won't torture you in his presence. What a marvelous 
covenant God that we have who's willing to get involved in the messes that you and I make. Let's stand and go out with prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, this morning for your word. Thank you, Lord, for just showing us, Lord, uh, just fresh revelation of yourself. Lord, how you're not afraid to get your hands dirty in the messes that your covenant people make. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. And we pray, Lord, that these truths about you and how you deal with people, Lord, would just stir up our affection for you, that we would find ourselves, Lord, just wanting to draw nearer to you, Lord, to be more like you, but Lord, that we would love you because you have demonstrated your love for us. Lord, may you be glorified. Lord, help us to walk in obedience to you. Lord, help us to be a people, Lord, that wait upon you, that are patient. And Lord, we don't take matters into our own hands. And Lord, where we have the clear direction of your word, Lord, would you help us to obey? We so desperately want to please you. Lord, not for salvation, but because of salvation and what you've done for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.